Okay, hello everybody. My name is Matt Waters. I am a person who lives in the United Kingdom, who loves the X-Men, uh, and I am joined by somebody else who loves the X-Men, and we're going to talk about X-Men movies over a course of hours, weeks, years, who knows how long. I am joined by Mike Thomas. <laughs> uh, uh, great to be here, Matt. Yeah. Thanks for joining me on this, uh, this adventure. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it's kind of, I'm joining you, but here I am hosting anyway. Uh, so what was it in your brain that said, hey, I should do an X-Men podcast with Matt Waters? Well, I think uh, the X-Men, like, for lack of a better term, cinematic universe is so interesting in that it, it one, was historically significant and kind of bringing new energy to making comic book properties into movies. And... But yeah, at the same time, so much of it flies in the face of conventional wisdom of how we should be doing these universes now, how we should be betraying them. Uh, like, I mean, like, for instance, like Marvel, uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe is kind of obsessed with, like, reminding everyone that at all times that these movies take place in the same universe and they kind of micromanage so many of the details to make sure that everyone remembers that. And uh, the X-Men movies could not give fewer fucks about that. <laughs> Even yeah, for sure. even even now that like with you know all their ducks in a row and they're planning things more they they still just do things where I'm just like did did this even like did did you did you watch Days of Future Past before you made this movie like why is this not addressed yada 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 and when you go through what all eight nine films over the past fifteen years there's there it doesn't feel like one person's vision and that vision is so generalized and broad that there's no room for individual filmmaking. And it's just, it's just endlessly fascinating to me. And, uh, and personally, I, I mean, I think X-Men is the most interesting comic universe that exists. Um, it's, it's truly like an ensemble world. You don't, it's not relying upon one character, which probably is something that they should have remembered as I'm sure we will get into mm-hmm. at nauseum over the next eight out next uh, eight and nine podcasts. Um, and I, I think there's, there's so much room for potential that it's, com- it's almost like they, it's never going to be perfect, but there's always room for it to be better. And there's always something to, to like, even in the disasters. Uh, Cause there have been some absolute disasters in this film franchise, but there's always things to be like, well, that was kind of awesome, even though it only was like 10 minutes of this awful movie. But there's still there's always there's always something there that you can hang out, hang your hat on. That's true. And like spoiler alert, when we get into X-Men Origins Wolverine and X-Men The Last Stand, there are things I'm going to say that I liked about those movies, even uh-huh. though they are generally considered just complete garbage fires. But yeah, I agree with you. Like, it's it's a very diverse, uh, rich universe, uh, like the, the original property. Um, I like that it's an ensemble and it doesn't rest on anyone's shoulders. And as far as the films are concerned, like this really led to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Like there had been Batman movies, there had been uh, Superman movies, obviously that were huge. But those characters are so iconic that they're just part of pop culture more than their comic book movies. This was the first of a, a long wave that is still going on of like comic book movies and uh, yeah, X Men kind of. Start. I know Marvel, in a lot of people's minds, has surpassed X-Men with the sort of ratio of good to bad, but I think without these early ones, you wouldn't have the Marvel ones, to be honest. 
and I, I'm not as positive about that, but I, I, in a lot of ways, I think the comic book film boom was was going to happen. It was inevitable. Mm. But when was it going to happen? How was it going to happen? I well, think without X-Men, we're not as nearly as deep as we are into it now. Sure. I don't think. And it's possible, you know, you know, Warner Brothers doesn't feel the need like, hey, let's do Batman, but do it really well. Yeah. I, maybe, maybe this isn't responsible for it, but I think this certainly validated it. Like, if the first huge comic book movie had been a complete bust, things might not have gone as, as well. But this uh, was heavily promoted, came out, was awesome, sequels, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And, you know, like, in the his like, the book on comic books and movies coming together is going to be a really, really long book, and we have no idea when it's going to end. If the first chapter, or the first two chapters are Superman and Batman, the, the next chapter starts with X-Men, and that is significant for better or worse for the history of comic books and film, and film in general, because comic books and film are, are kind of going to be married together for the next few decades. Yeah, for sure. I mean, people keep talking about it like it's a fad or a flash in the pan, but, I mean, look at the schedule for the next almost ten years. and We, had, we have six major comic book films coming out this year. Yep. Six. Six. It's a crazy. And I'm probably, I'm probably like forgetting some smaller ones. Like I'm just thinking of the two X Men movies, the two Marvel movies, and the two DC movies. When X Men came out, like there hadn't been anything since Batman mm. and Robin, unless yep. you count the Blade, the first Blade movie, which I don't, I, I don't even really think of that as a comic book movie. But that's maybe my own bias. Yeah. And then I don't think there was another comic book movie until 2002 with the, the first Spider Man. So it's just a completely different world we're living in now than when this came out and it's kind of hard to appreciate that if you weren't if you don't either read a lot about it or didn't grow up in that time yeah for sure um blade like most people don't even know that's a marvel property like that was just i, I, I definitely didn't at the time yeah i didn't um, <laughs> i mean i was pretty young but like i was it probably wasn't until the third one came out that i actually understood that was a comic book hmm. and now they um, have it back potentially but that's and with that in mind if with that in mind we can kind of transition right into the fact that this movie, uh, X-Men, came out in 2000, is not a big movie. Like, it only cost $75 million, which obviously is a lot of money, but it's not a lot of movie for, a, not, a lot, not a lot of money for a big summer comic book bonanza. And you can really see that on the screen. Like, it, nothing about this feels big in scope whatsoever. No, definitely. Um, Singer talks about it. Uh, you know, when when asked about this film, he says it's a modest budget for a big event picture. Which you know, again, seventy five million is is not small money. But when you consider how much it costs to make films these days, you're talking hundreds of millions of dollars, not seventy five million. Um, and yeah, it's it's really it's it's simple in a way that comic book movies aren't now. Like, there's real sets. There's not a huge amount of green screen. Obviously, the powers, uh, the effects on the powers are shaky. <laughs> um, some yes. of them haven't aged all that well, but I mean, hey. Um, but it's a lot of just it. It's a big cast, but it's also I don't know. It's, it's deceptive bit... because when you're in the mansion and places like that, you've also, you've got obviously got all these bodies, and we can identify them visually as characters from X Men, like Jubilee is in the school and whatnot. But really, this X Men team is four people. And it's it works really well. Just a lot of uh, small character moments, and I think the yeah. money is spent very well. It's a very streamlined movie. Like there, it's it gets from point A to point B very efficiently, and does not want to waste a lot of time. It's only an hour and forty five minutes, which is not a ton of screen time. 
And honestly, when I see like a big summer blockbuster that's only in the 90 to 100 minute range, my eyebrows kind of get raised. Me like, all right, what went wrong? What went wrong with this movie? Like, when Fantastic <laughs> Four was only like an hour and 15 minutes, I'm like this is going to be such a disaster. <laughs> and uh, and you know, but instead, this is kind of just like a really sleek. Let's get in. Let's get out. Let's tell our story, and let's not waste a lot of time uh, with things that people may not care about. Yeah, I, I think that's its biggest strength is how streamlined it is, how to the point it is. It's kind of like they got this really tight story because ori- original drafts included Sentinels and the Danger Room and all this stuff. They took all and that a lot out. More char- uh, and a lot more characters. Yes. Like for, uh, Beast and Nightcrawler, I think, were supposed to be in yeah. it. Yeah. Um, and I th- they basically just took a whole bunch of character moments and used them to string together the plot points instead of, now here's five minutes of origin on Wolverine. And here's how... Like... When you you get the Magneto scene, you get Rogue, and that's kind of it. And then they mutants are already established in the public eye when the film begins. Uh, it's being debated in in the Senate or wherever they're supposed to be. Um, I think that works in its favor a lot. There's sort of origins fatigue these days with yes. you know 45 minutes before they even wear the costume or use the powers or whatever it may be and this one just hits the ground running and just goes and it's so tight and it works so well like my vague memories of the x-men films i was like x-men one was fine but watching it back for this i was like you know what this is a really really well written and uh, executed film it's it's just it's a good movie it's not even like one it doesn't even it barely feels like a comic book movie i mean it feels like they're. It doesn't feel like they're running away from it, and that they're ashamed. It feels like, well, we don't have the budget to turn this into a big, explosive movie, so we're gonna try to make it as minimalistic as possible. And it really works in its favor. Like it feels like there's a consistent vision for what this world should be, for who these characters are, and you you never that's never in doubt from beginning to end. Like you never feel you you, you rarely question the motives or why someone is doing something. Does that make sense? Like it's just it's clear basically from beginning to end and it doesn't waste a lot of time. It's a, it's a really fun movie to watch too. Yeah, definitely. And, uh, Brian Singer, he was allegedly quoted to have said that he didn't think comic books were an intelligible art form before he took this film on. And then, but then when he did take it, he was convinced by reading some comics and he watched the animated series, which obviously we're big fans of, uh, changed his mind. And he said he approached it like any other film. Like, it's just the characters happen to be superheroes. And I think that really shows. And I think the casting of legitimate actors in, you know, Ian McKellen, Patrick Stewart, that helped enormously. Those two set in place from the word go opposite each other has just worked in every iteration. Yeah, it's. Uh, I don't think enough can be said about how important that was. I mean, like, they're, they're two world-class actors that give the film so much credibility, so much weight just by their presence. And, you know, because they're not, unlike with the, the future films about their origins, they don't, these two don't really have an arc, per se, in the story. But you fully, be, like, you fully understand who their characters are just from a few key scenes and just by their delivery, by their characterization. It's really well done like you take some shortcuts with casting like great actors sometimes and mm-hmm. it pays off in this case yeah they just they gave it immediate gravitas um that made it i would imagine more difficult for people when this was announced i mean i was real young when this came out i have a vague recollection of trailers with magneto versus the cops and all that but i would imagine at the time 
before this had come out, when you were hearing about it, it would have been easy to go, oh, an X-Men movie. But then when you hear that cast, you're probably like, okay, I'll give this a look. Yeah, I mean, I remember, uh, actually remember being in my kitchen, because I was such an X-Men fan that I was going no matter what. But my dad was like, well, I'm interested in anything that Ian McKellen's doing. And I'm just like, who? (laughs) Does he play Cyclops? He's the third person in the cast. He must play Cyclops. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That was... A stroke of casting genius without that it's hard to say it's hard to envision x-men without those two there definitely Which is crazy because those two have basically only been a big part of two x-men movies that were good <laughs> mm. well because they we're gonna disagree I mean, we, about one of them but i think there were three good movies starring them but we'll get but to where that. they were they were they were front and center uh yeah okay fine yeah that's what i mean like uh, like i'm not yeah, like where they are front and center, where they're like in the thick of the main action. Yeah, they're basically only in two good ones. That's true. Well, but I mean, I mean, while we're talking about this, do you want to talk a little bit about the uh, the speculated and final cast for the various characters? Because there's some interesting stories regarding, particularly Wolverine, but several other characters. I think my favorite one by far is in fact Wolverine, which mm-hmm. is that Hugh Jackman was not originally cast, nope. and that it was originally going to be Dougree Scott. Mm-hmm. Who is Dougree Scott, you might ask me. <laughs> he was too busy filming Mission Impossible 2, which went like two or three months late into shooting, and then he lost out on Wolverine because of that, and they had to fly in Hugh Jackman at the last second to uh, to play Wolverine. And in case you're wondering how significant it is, I mean, Hugh Jackman probably is worth nine figures just from Wolverine alone. Uh-huh. Uh, you've probably never heard Dougree Scott's name since then. I certainly haven't. Uh, I think he and- was in Hitman. <laughs> Okay, but you know, you know, you know, huge name, a solid credit, nothing, nothing. <laughs> and uh, another thing, someone actually mentioned to me recently is that Hugh Jackman has only been in like fifteen or seventeen things since two thousand, and half of them are him playing Wolverine. Yeah, he's really given himself to this part in a in a way that is quite surprising because his work is generally well perceived and. You know, how he could many be doing t- other things. Exactly. How many times has he come back to this and not just come back to it, but he does the research, like he's passionate about the character, he gets absolutely jacked for it every time. I guess pun intended there, Jackman. Yeah. Oh, oh dear. Yeah. Um Yeah. But I mean that's just, that's not the only person. I mean Kiefer Sutherland was at one point attached to be Wolverine, dating way back before this film took yeah. real shape. You and got- and Brian Singer wanted uh, Russell Crowe. Yeah, and which... he was the one who rep- recommended Hugh Jackman because he was a friend of his. And he turned it down because he thought it was a cartoon film. Yeah, and I think he said it was also like, I saw another quote about him saying it was too similar to get Gladiator, like the roles were too similar. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's, uh, there's actually, I think in some ways the most interesting casting is that there were so many people up for Rogue. Mm. And like Natalie Portman, yep. Sarah Michelle Gellar, like a lot of like, um, a lot of like named act- actresses were going for that role, and I, I, or if not going for it, were int- were being recruited for that role, and uh, I, I kind of think like Anna Paquin like did a really good job as this like broken rogue, but like there's, I don't know why you cast Anna Paquin knowing like what rogue should become later on. Yeah, I mean, because like, like this is supposed to be like one of the most badass superheroes eventually and Anna Paquin while talented and while does this version of Rogue very well I don't think could possibly have pulled that off and they kind of wisely steered away from that direction I don't think she could have pulled that off at all yeah I mean with all these kind of movies you get the whole um, 
well, this isn't how it's supposed to be thing. Yes. And there are good changes, acceptable changes, and bad changes. And I think this one is... I think having her character be this sort of broken, fragile teen who's confused and our sympathetic viewpoint character, that works really well. It's effective because her power lends itself to that and that she can't yeah. touch people. But I remember Rogue from being young and watching that cartoon as this physically strong, confident woman. And I think that would have been interesting to see as her journey progressed. But, I mean, you can't really... Yeah, Anna Paquin certainly couldn't pull that off. I could see Sarah Michelle Gellar doing that. Um, yeah. Like, I'm glad they didn't force it afterwards, but it was still kind of disappointing. Like, yeah. looking back now, being like, well, they they made the right decision based on who they cast, but why did they cast Anna Paquin? Yeah. I, I really don't know. Natalie Portman turned it down, I know. Uh, yes, I think that's what I saw. Yeah. But uh, uh, any other big uh, casting ones that you remember? Uh, Kevin Nash was supposed to play Sabretooth, but they went to his tag, okay. his tag team partner in WCW <laughs> instead. So we got Excellent. that one. Uh, Excellent. Jim, Jim Caviezel was cast as Cyclops, but had to drop out. So, you know, he's good enough to play Jesus. Oh, but... you know what? It was that he, uh, I actually read that too, that he, uh, he wanted to play the lead in Frequency instead yes. of being a supporting role in X-Men. Yep. Um, you know, obviously, uh, he's got a popular TV show now, so yeah. I won't cry for him. But. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Janet Jackson was considered for Storm at one point. Uh, Jada Pinkett Smith, Angela Bassett, all were up for that. Yeah, I think they probably should have got with Bassett. Yeah, uh, Terrence but, uh, Stamp and Christopher Lee were alternate Magnetos. None of those would have been a bad casting, but I can't picture it as anyone but Ian McKellen now. So. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that's about it. Oh, <laughs> Ben Affleck, Matt Damon were linked to Cyclops at one point. And Vince Vaughn tried out for it, but they were like, no, thank you. I actually think Matt Damon probably would have been a good choice back. I, but, you know, we've talked about extensively that James Marsden does it really well. Mm. Um, so I don't, I, don't, I don't really have any complaints with James Marsden being in that role. I think James Marsden got screwed horrifically by... Oh, we will get... Uh, yeah, yes, we will. We, uh, we will. We're, we're totally... We're in lockstep with that. Although yeah. we differ slightly about when the screwing over happens, but sure. yes, he got completely screwed over. Sure. Uh, yeah, I think that's that's everyone like notable that was almost cast. But in terms of who we do have, uh, do do we want to go into that, or do we just want to dive yeah, into the film? Okay. Yeah, let's dive into that. Okay, so we've we've talked about Xavier and Magneto. Obviously, they're great, perfect. Uh, everyone had wanted Patrick Stewart for Xavier since the dawn of comic book movies. Um, I think Hugh Jackman, you know, obviously, to to some people, they wanted someone smaller. But I mean, what are you going to do? He, I mean, he who, could, who could possibly care about that? Exactly. Really, he, in the grand scheme of things, he is Wolverine. He's synonymous yeah. with him. And it's crazy. Like, like I said, going right back, he's just Wolverine from the get go. Like, it's not even. There's no adjustment period. There's yeah. no like him getting comfortable in the role. Like, he's just Wolverine. The only thing that's interesting is how much smaller he is in this one. Yeah. Uh, well, he joined. He was cast when they'd already started filming. Yeah. So he comes on and he's just a normal dude, and he's like, "Oh, I've got to keep yeah. working out. Got to keep working out." You compare that with how he looks in uh, I mean, the, he looks... the Wolverine, and he's like a tank. Yeah, and uh, which is interesting. I don't like think he needs to. It's kind of like Superman. It's like when you have a metal skeleton and you can't be killed. I don't feel like you need to have that like eight pack look with muscles on muscles on muscles. But uh, you know. Whatever, more power to him if that's yeah. what he thinks needs to needs to be. Yeah, and I, I like uh, that he he threw in a lot of Wolverineisms. Like uh, there's yeah. only, there's only one bub in the first film, but apparently he said it a lot 
ad-libbed and they kept <laughs> yeah, one of them for him. Yeah. That's, I appreciate that. that, that he, he actually cared enough to try and sex the character up a bit, make him more like Wolverine. <laughs> yeah, and you know, I think they uh, very wisely used Wolverine as like the main character for the first one because he is an outsider to the story. You know, he's an outsider to that world. Like, he doesn't fit in easily, so he's a natural character to introduce the audience to everything. And he's also just a, a pretty easy character to highlight the moral gray area going on of being like, like, why should anyone get invested in this? Well, if he gets invested in it, then maybe it's worth getting invested into because, like, the decisions he'd make throughout the movie just, like, he, like, it's him, like, changing as a human being. Like, but he's not completely changed, but he's changing enough. And that just very simple, easily done stuff that I think was done really well and that Jackman pulled off seamlessly. Yeah, for sure. I think this is a much more authentic uh, version of how I think of Wolverine being, where he is yes. he is morally gray. You know, he he's a little bit... He doesn't care so much about certain things. Like, when Rogue tells him... Uh, when she touches people, they get physically hurt. He just goes, fair enough, and doesn't ask any more questions. I just think that's a really yes. nice, small detail. And Yeah, and he, he, he does gradually change. Uh, and But even so, that's only because of the relationship he developed with Rogue. It's, it's hard to envision him getting involved in all these things if Rogue is not you know, caught up in the middle of all of it. And uh, one of the things I think the film does really well is just those two just have really good chemistry, and their bond is kind of just natural comes off the screen very well and like you totally buy into that he would go out of his way to help her and join up with these like goofballs and costumes to do it yeah yeah absolutely i mean he's reluctant to take her on in the first place but then when they are two fish out of water in the same new pond uh he obviously gravitates towards her more and he wants to protect her yeah. even from them and then when they lose her or whatever he goes after her. and the scene on the train is, is it's one- beautiful yeah that's I literally what I was about to say. It's like when, like him's going, you know, there's not a lot of people in this world who understand what we're going through, but besides Xavier is probably one of them. Like that's a really nice moment. Yeah. And like, you really feel like, I don't know, like it's, it's emotional in all the right ways. Yeah. That's perfect. It carries it so well. And there's like a history of Wolverine bonding with younger girls in the, in the canon, like in the comics, it's Kitty Pride in the, in the animated series. It was Jubilee. Here we've got rogues who's sort of, the surrogate for that role and yeah it it just works really really well um cyclops we both big fan of he isn't given a lot to work with here but i i I think the story of james marsden and cyclops in both the first two x-men movies is just him making the most of what he's given absolutely and and just like taking a character that we kind of that kind of keeps the it it makes sense of it's like he kind of keeps the world at a distance and in turn, the character is kind of kept that distance from us. We don't really know. We haven't seen him pushed to his limit yet. And when we eventually finally see him pushed to his limit at the end of X2, like it feels really earned. But, uh, you know, this is kind of like a good teaser for what, of who Cyclops is and what James Marsden was capable of doing with them. And I think it was done effectively. And like I said, in an hour and 45 minute movie, you don't have a, a room for a ton of, uh, characters, but like just him, you know, like slowly trusting Wolverine more. Mm. Him, like you know, giving Wolverine the benefit of the doubt. Like that is, like that felt natural. That felt earned. That didn't feel forced. It didn't feel phony. It didn't feel fake. Anything like that. Like that's just like good writing, good acting, 
Yeah, for sure. And I think he had a real challenge on his hands because that character is always going to be hard to play because you can't see his eyes and it's hard to yeah. really feel what a character's trying to say and what their intentions are when you can't lock eyes with them like that. But I, I think he did it well. And like you said, the, the, the stuff of Wolverine, I think it's a... The sort of Cyclops versus Wolverine debate goes back beyond this film and it will continue after this one. But I think it's handled at its best in this one because while Wolverine is inherently a quote-unquote cooler character... He's also a dick. Yes, and I think that this film presents it in a more balanced way where like, you can see how you're supposed to slightly slide with Wolverine, but it is more balanced. I think that's probably maybe a weakness of the film is that it really only, because it only shows it through Wolverine's perspective. Like as a little kid, I in no way understood like how much of a dick Wolverine is being in this movie when it comes to how he behaves around Gene. Yep. Like Wolverine is just like an asshole. Yep. Like if you saw him behaving that way to any woman in a bar, let alone a married woman, like you'd just be like, what an asshole. Yeah. And it's kind of, and I don't know. Like, I feel like we probably need to see a little bit more from Gene and Scott's perspective on that yeah. to understand them. Well, and... you, you get this nice moment where he asks Cyclops, is this where you tell me to stay away from your girl? And he says, if I needed to do that, she wouldn't be my girl. And it's just a, a good moment like from each of them there. And yeah. they... But uh, I think they get... Like, it's so clearly that he's being a dick there, and with adult eyes, like, it couldn't be clearer, mm-hmm. but I guess I'm, like, slightly troubled by him being a dick and, like, me not recognizing as a kid. I don't know if that more, says more about me or says something about how it's portrayed in the movie, but I'm <laughs> guessing it's probably a mixture of both. Uh, for sure. I remember, uh, you know, when talking about these films being younger, how, ah, yeah, Wolverine. And I think as you watch the the sequels, you will see that there is a clear intention to steer things in Wolverine's favor, but watching this yes. one, it is oh, more Inexplicably balanced. so. Yes. Inexplicably so. <laughs> um, I think that's actually, if there's one, like, constant throughout all these prequels and whatever, like, there that this connection between Gene and Wolverine being legitimate and him not being a creepy-ass delusional asshole... They, they did not strike the right balance. <laughs> yeah, I mean, th- this change that, like, almost she has to be with Cyclops, but she's always wanted Wolverine. It's just... At, it's condescending bullshit. Yeah, at, at best, <laughs> in the comic books, she felt a slight physical attraction for him, but at no point did she ever like him more than Scott. And the, the story we're given later is very much sort of, like, just because he loves her, she has to like him back because he's the cool dude. But... Yeah. But I do, I do well, like them here. The two um, Cyclops and Wolverine. This is, um, and it's pers- it's restrained here. Yeah. It's restrained here. It's not like it's like Logan's being a straight up dick, and that's how it's portrayed on screen. Yeah. I they they probably could have, like I said, with more perspective, it should have been clear. But you know, with adult eyes, it couldn't be clear. Yeah. The particular moment I like though is uh, near the end when. Wolverine gives him the finger using one of his claws. Yeah. And he just sort of smirks. Like it's a it's a it's a playful moment. It's fun. I yeah. Like it's uh it's I I think their dynamic was strong here and they, those two had good chemistry together. Yeah. Uh we spoke about Gene, so what do you think? Uh of, not really yeah. Well no, no I'm saying we we brought her up briefly in the oh, yeah, in the yeah. Cyclops Wolverine debate. Uh Fanke Jansen as as Jean Grey. I, I think she does a good job. Yeah. I, I think Jean Gina was a character that I never understood well as a kid. Mm. So I was always, I was like, she didn't seem very flashy. 
uh, I think what's really interesting, one that I just learned recently, which is that uh, a lot of her lines in the movie were originally going to be for Beast. Yes. And But uh, that Jean then all of a sudden became a doctor and a mutant activist because they didn't have the budget for Beast. Um, you know, but, an, uh, an understandable think, change. <laughs> yeah. Um, like, it, that totally fits and works. Like, it doesn't, like, that's not a stretch. It's not like, I mean, if, like, if Gambit all of a sudden was a doctor and a mutant activist, like, there would be issues. Yes. Um, but, uh, it's interesting to see this Jean Grey being so afraid of her powers, and I think that's actually a really interesting beat the play. Because, um, I mean, like, for instance, at the end, the big conclusion is that they need to get Wolverine to the top of the torch. And in almost every other X-Men film, it's maybe the second one like gene could just do that with a snap of her fingers yes like that it would like that's not an issue but here like gene is like concentrating you know to levitate like weird plastic things for cyclops to practice shooting you know she can't just instantly you know phase away the goo on her face that toad spits at her because i don't know she just doesn't she hasn't unleashed her power yet and i think once again that's actually i think i'm assuming that's a case of the lack of budget actually working in the story's favor because it gives her gives her a clear direction to go in. But uh, I think Jean being afraid of how much power she has like totally makes sense. Like because if you want if you are Xavier, you are probably also afraid of what Jean can do one day, and it makes sense that she would not leave this safe environment that where she would have no need to really let loose. And I think I think she does a really good job with that. The uh, Fonky Johnson. Uh, I don't actually. Fanka Janssen? Is that what he said? That's Fanka Janssen, but I don't know. Uh, okay. Um, um, yeah, I, they they play on it a little bit where you get uh, Wolverine almost suggesting that she's being held back by uh, both Charles Xavier and Scott to an extent. Uh, and like you have her dismissing that she can use Cerebro and stuff like that because in this version she, she's, she is a little bit more afraid of her power. And it's good foreshadowing to, you know, when people think of Jean Grey, they think Phoenix, and it's a, yeah. So even if even if you didn't know if this film was getting a sequel, just that is a small bit of foreshadowing that I think everyone could get behind. And speaking of that, something I did not pick up on until maybe like the last three or four years when I rewatched it is that Magneto's machine clearly triggers what you know Jean's power becoming unleashed with, without her control. Hmm. Uh, if you like, you go back like you won. There's uh, just after they, you know, Wolverine takes down the machine at the end, like you see Jean clearly startled, like in a way that implies something may have just happened. And then at the beginning of the second film, you hear Scott say, you know, ever since Liberty Island, like you've just been like, you're, oh, the whole yeah. room shakes when you when you have a nightmare. And it's something where it wasn't necessary to make that like, hey, this is what happened. But it's kind of like a cool thing to pick up on later on where it's like. It also kind of removes the space element of the Jean Grey story, mm. which I think, based on the tone of the first two movies, would not have really been appropriate. Yeah. And uh, something we can get on later when we, yeah. in like eight <laughs> episodes when we discuss Apocalypse and the future of the franchise. Uh, but uh, yes. I know. Uh, I, I can't believe they're going to space in the next movie. It pisses me off. Uh, yeah. But uh, <laughs> I. I think it's uh, like it all makes sense, and like I said, I think with most almost every performance in the movie is solid, and this is not the exception. Yes. Uh, well, speaking of possible speaking exceptions, of, speaking of the exception, Storm. <laughs> I, that's where I was going. Uh, Halle Berry is awful. She's awful in every portrayal of Storm. I think pretty much. <laughs> um, at least I think 
I think I the most know. interesting thing here is that she tries to use an African accent of some kind. Yeah, I remember this being like part of the legacy of the character that she infamously tried it in the first one and then failed and dropped it. I I didn't notice it for the most part, and like the most pronounced it is is in a deleted scene when she's teaching the class. It's like actually oh, really? quite yeah. Um, it's hey, just, I haven't gone back and I almost watched them, but I haven't gone back and watched those scenes yeah. in probably a decade. Well, I, I I did my prep work. Um, <laughs> no, yeah, it's just an extended scene where uh, where she's teaching in class and, and Iceman freezes Pyro's fire and makes ah. whatever. Uh, she's teaching there, and it's a much thicker accent. But yeah, it's her voice is all over the place. I just I just do not dig her as Storm at all, who is supposed to be this really strong goddess, and she just never really feels that way in any of the films. I don't think. And it, and also it 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 reminds me of a couple of things. One, like, so here's the thing with X Men, like, in the overall like problem with the X Men story, it kind of has like this very simple like Harry Potter like portrayal of like minority characters being persecuted, mm-hmm. and it does that by giving their stories to straight white people, which is kind of an issue. <laughs> like that, I mean, it's not kind of it's an issue. Like that is a storytelling issue. Like. To take like the persecution of oppressed people, and then to take to take that story and give it to straight white people on screen is a problem. Like yes. that's not something that should be done. And you, you, if you can't get past that with this, I honestly can't blame you. Like I, I don't know if X Men was just coming out now, and I did not have like extreme attachment to it. That might be like a non-starter for me. But like I'm just gonna have to like get past it. But anyway. Uh, it's is that they treat the people of color in these movies so terribly like of all the characters storm by far has the least to do of the main of the main heroes right yep uh it is they do not you know i it's part of it is like they did not cast a a dark-skinned female to portray like i know that's an issue for some people like they do not give her of all the characters she has the least amount of arc humanly possible i don't think she like you can argue scott and gene like have a little something she probably has nothing yeah uh she kind of begins and ends with her power set like she's not really a person yeah and um it just like you know i think that's something we'll be able to track as we go out through as we like look through all these films but like they just they just have an issue with portraying people of color in these movies and it's made all the worse by the fact with the general conceit of the universe that it's oppressed people's stories told through straight white people yeah the only moment they uh, really try and give her anything to do is when uh senator kelly is dying in front of her yes and she just uh, she says that uh ordinary people make her afraid that's the closest they get to giving her character i actually and i do think that's a nice moment but it's like it doesn't build. It doesn't pay anything off. It doesn't lead to anything more. And like I said, it's Halle Berry brings nothing to it. But there's nothing there for her to bring. Yes. Like there's not. There's nothing for there to make work. Yeah, I mean, like James Marsden took nothing and turned it into something. She took nothing and turned it into more nothing. Yeah. Or I, I would argue, like James Marsden took like a quarter of a sure. loaf of bread and turned it into like a loaf of bread. Yes. She took nothing and. Left with nothing. Left with I, nothing. I don't know. I don't know if, if someone else could have done more. I would assume so, though. Yeah. We, I think it's important to talk about uh, Senator Davis. Um, that's his name, right? Kelly. Senator Kelly. Kelly. Senator Kelly. I, Bruce Davidson's really good in this role. Yeah, like, man. He's really, really good. He's he's got that instant sort of. And uh, I want to punch you in the face, slimy politician quality. And at the same time, you're kind of like, it's. 
obviously, like, these are people who are born this way, and we should not be oppressing them just for that. But it's not like, like, some of these are, people are born with, like, the capabilities to do things that we probably, you could argue we should know about. Or it's at least believable that half the country would want to want to know what they're doing. And, like, oh, Speaking of that with Storm, I've never understood with Storm, why isn't she, like, curing, like, droughts? Like, yeah. why isn't Storm, like, why is Storm wasting her time teaching, like, the kids at that time when she could be, like, you know, curing worldwide famine and all sorts of weather issues that are destroying people? Anyway, but, mm-hmm. uh, but that, uh, yeah, so I think Senator Kelly does a really good job. I think he makes what should be a detestable position into a somewhat realistic interpretation of how the world would received mutants oh yeah absolutely i mean he he mentions there's a little girl from illinois kitty pride who can walk through walls that would be a legitimate massive security concern for the country yeah. like, even if she is just some girl who never intends to use this that way knowing that that is a possibility would change everything it would they'd be changing how security works they'd be doing research everything yeah and uh like that's not i don't even like to sympathize with that view in any way but i can at least see it makes sense that that would that yeah. half the country would feel that way. Yeah, it's realistic. Um, it gives it, it yes. gives it real world grounding. This is what and would he does happen. It, yeah, and he perfectly captures that, and then like the horror later on of what happens to him, <sighs> uh, which I guess we should kind of transition to in what is, you know, technically the main story or the main point of the movie, which is Magneto has somehow created a machine. Mm. There's, by the way, there's so many machines and things in this movie where they don't even bother to explain how or why they work. Cyclops' turbo cycle? Uh, what was it? Uh, Mystique's random potion that she puts in Cerebo that yes. somehow incapacitates Professor Charles Xavier for just the right amount of time. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jean Grey Mag- knows how to fix immediately. Yes. Uh, Magneto's magic medic- uh, metal swirling machine that somehow gives people power and it creates radiation. And that he uh, has to operate at first, but then it works automatically with Rogue later. Like, yeah, like it's just being, just having his power makes it work. Yeah. Um, why does why does his metal helmet block Xavier? Why does <laughs> why why does his why is his island capable of blocking Cerebro? Like, and uh, there's just yeah. so many things like that. But you just kind of have to accept them, which is. I think the movie does a great job of literally just not even attempting to explain them and just does it. And yeah. you have to. I think and that's probably that's probably the best way to do it. I think in this very tight, very good film, the weakest aspect is the machine and the plan in general. But you know, I actually I, I was thinking about it today. Um, and I think the machine the machine is dumb, but his intentions are kind of interesting. Hmm. In that, you know, for for everything, for every awful thing Magneto's probably done in this world, he's not a senseless killer. No, like he doesn't kill for no reason. In fact, he he generally seems to avoid killing. Um, and I really love that moment outside the train station, yes. where he has these guns in front of all these people, and Xavier gives him one shot because he knows deep down Eric Lencher is not going to kill this innocent civilian for no reason. Like he, like you can even like. Like that's not Xavier sacrificing a human being. That's in my opinion. I think that's Xavier being like, he's not going to do it. Like I still have enough hope that he's not going to just do that. Yeah. And and I think it's revealing because like, you know, 
Magneto doing that is not going... If Magneto kills that cop in that scene, that's not going to all of a sudden going to change anything. He chooses not to kill that person. Yeah, absolutely. He like, could get away with that. So he's, he's gone. Yeah. Like, he's already yeah. gone. So he's going to get away with Rogue regardless of whether or not that cop dies. And he chooses not to because he's not that kind of person. No. And I think what's interesting is that he kind of like... He is so... Such a... Uh, what's the word? Um, but he believes in his goals so much, which is basically just that he believes in his ideas so much that humans are eventually going to destroy us because they fear us because that's how humans work. And that's generally pretty correct. Um, that unless we could do something drastic, like turn them all into mutants, nothing's ever going to get fixed. And I don't even think he, he believes that something is going to get fixed. I think he believes that this is kind of justice in a way. And I think he's so committed to that idea that when, Storm tells him that Senator Kelly died. I think he truly believes he didn't die. I think he truly believes that he, his machine does not kill. Yeah, they kind of cut away from that for a, for a moment. Like uh, he questions them about it, or, or he says, "Are like, you sure you saw what you saw?" Yeah, exactly. Right? And like that could even imply that that puddle of water is a conscious living Senator Kelly or something. I don't know. Or but... like that was his power. He turns it yeah, to water. Exactly. Um, um, yeah. No, Magneto, especially mutants, above all else, he would never. Like, that's a big plot point. He could easily kill a lot of mutants with his power. He never kills yeah. the X-Men. He never even makes a real attempt to kill any of them because he, yeah, above everything, he wants mutants to live. And like I said, like, I don't think, like, I just don't think he's a killer in quite that way. Yeah. He's like, also, he's you, also not we, really a world conqueror. He doesn't want to run yes. the world. Um, and he's often content to hide from it. Yeah, that, that, that's the plot point over and over and over again to the point it's actually almost tired. He tries to separate himself from society yeah. and he gets dragged back into it. Um, yeah. so, I, so I guess, I guess, what, I guess the machine is needed here because he's not going to try and kill people. He's not going to try and conquer anything. So this is kind of, you know, what is he as a villainous threat? And I guess this is a, an yeah. answer to that question. And I think, like I said, because of that, I think the the his end goal is much more interesting than the device they use to make it possible. Yeah. Like, I, I think that goal is not noble, but it's interesting and it presents a clear conflict and provides, you know, a moral gray area because, you know, it's almost like Xavier is wrong in how he views the world, but he's going about it the right way. Whereas, you know, Magneto has a more realistic view of the world, but is going about it in the wrong way. Absolutely. And uh, I think that internal that internal conflict is kind of the driving force of these movies. And whether or not they should be making ten films about that internal conflict, that's another question. But I think there's a reason why it works a lot of the time, because I think that's interesting. I think that's interesting that two people could have completely different worldviews that go about them in different ways, and it's just that's that's endlessly interesting. That's what I mean, that's in part what separates this from I mean, think of the freaking plots in most of these Marvel movies. One, they're almost all, they're almost all the same, but there's no gray area to any of them. No, even the good ones. Yeah, even the good ones. Like Loki is trying to take over the world, and that is one of the best Marvel movies. It's Loki trying to take over the world with a CG CGI army. He, yeah. Oh, you weren't going to say the the time he did it with the destroyer and and no. Nah. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Um. I mean, like, Guardians of the Galaxy is one of the most fun Marvel movies ever. That 
villain is boring and has no and has is not a character visually very very cool though <laughs> yes yes and played with extreme disdain and charisma by lee pace lee but pace, uh yeah. it's not it's not actual character they cut all the villains legs out from under them they make them yeah. a lot more one note and just basically this film just establishes that magneto is not is not that kind of character. Well, they, he they, is, he's an actual character. They do it straight away because I think possibly the most effective scene in this entire franchise because they keep... it's kind of a it's kind of ridiculous that we did not talk about this already. Yeah, I was going to say they keep coming back to it. They've reshot it. They've they've reused the original footage over and over. It's the opening Holocaust scene with Magneto as a child being physically torn away from his parents and willing yeah. the gates to bend before being knocked out. It's such a powerful, well shot, well acted bit. And establishes the tone, yeah. the seriousness of the world we're living in. It is completely different than basically anything we've seen since in a different comic book world. Yeah. Um, I, rem- I remember the word of mouth about this scene. I remember people saying, look at this. Really? I remember this. Yeah. yeah. I, I have to admit that 11-year-old me yeah. uh, did not understand what was going on. I understood like <laughs> Nazis and Holocaust bad. That I did understand. Holocaust, but bad. I did not understand that that was Magneto as a kid. Like okay. I did not pick up on the. I did not pick up on the power at all. I'm like, is that Wolverine? I know this movie's about Wolverine. Like, what? <laughs> what is going on? Yeah, I did not pick up on that at all Fair as a kid. Enough. Well, I re- this uh, is the thing. I remember X Men being advertised as a kid, but obviously I wasn't old enough to go see it. So I didn't actually Oh, really? Oh, see I it. saw it in the theaters, like, twice. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, I would have been, like, I don't know. When did this come out? 2000. I would have been yeah. almost 11. Yeah, about 11. Yeah. So, yeah, I was 11. I didn't understand. Was it a PG? Was it 12? I don't know. Anyway, I didn't see it, it when it first came out. I would have actually actually seen it, like, a couple of years later. So I probably did have a little bit more of a reference point. But just, that scene is so damn good. Like, yeah. They, they go back to it ad nauseum for a reason. Yeah. It's effective. It's. I mean, like, hell. I mean, World War Two stories are effective for a reason. So, uh, yeah, it and, kinda... it, and it immediately, like, Magneto is is sort of the prototypical. He's a villain, but is he kind of character? You know, like he has suffered. Like his his reasons for being quote unquote evil are far more justifiable than most who are just like, I want money, I want power, I want whatever. Like yeah. th- this guy has gone through some stuff like he represents the danger of oppressing people the danger mm-hmm. of belief like but that doesn't mean that his beliefs are illegitimate that doesn't believe that the oppression he suffered was not very real but like you know like we create our own enemies like that's a common theme throughout history and that is exactly what you know the world did yeah to and, Magneto. and then it, you justify his his current stance because he's lived through this kind of thing before so people can tell him oh it might be okay but i think it's quite difficult to convince someone that's lived through the holocaust and speaking of that oh the scene with those two in the uh wherever the hell they are congress whatever uh where where stewart goes that was a long time ago humanity has evolved since then and like you can tell like you there's so much history in that like speech by him like there's so much sympathy and like just pity and understanding and like that desire to that search for hope that as they talk about that never ending search for hope like that is it is conveyed so vividly by Stuart in that scene it really just establishes their one I mean that the the Magneto Xavier relationship is wonderful yeah it's wonderful absolutely 
and uh, they kind of bookend the the story with those two, and it's it feels it's it's great. It's just great stuff. Yeah, they they ground it. You have all these yeah. things happening around, and then it it begins with these two almost. A load of explosions happen, and then it ends with these two, and they sort of talk yeah. it all over, and it's, it's, it's great. Yeah, and uh, I mean, we have a lot more to talk about, but we'll, we'll talk about that ending scene. I, it just, again, it's so great. It's so great. Uh, you know, and I love how they set up the second movie with that, where it's like, what, and uh, what do you do when, uh, do you ever fear that someone's going to come for you and your children? And like, one, it sets up the next movie, uh, next movie almost too perfectly. Like that's literally the plot of the next movie. <laughs> yeah. uh, but two, like it represents that real conflict that these two have to like deal with, and that conflict that Xavier has to go through in his head. Um, now, I, uh, so I think we need to talk about a few more quote unquote characters. Yes, uh, the Brotherhood. Yeah. What did you think of the Brotherhood? Um, it's a mixed bag, really. Yes. Um, Rebecca Romain as Mystique. How about on a visual level? What do okay. you think of them? Just Visually, like... okay, so Mystique traditionally, a lot of people have accepted this as how Mystique looks now with the reptilian skin and being naked and everything. This is not the traditional look, but it's kind of cool, so I kind of always let it slide, but poor poor Rebecca Romain, like throwing up blue and being kept separate and all that, having to go through like all that process. Nine hours of makeup every day. Yeah, not kept, being able kept to move. in a windowless room, couldn't fly the day before, all this stuff. Um, yeah, I Mystique, her look is largely unchanged throughout, I mean, for obvious reasons. I mean, it changes in a sense that she shapeshifts, but this, this basic naked blue lady with red hair, it's very striking and it's very yeah. easy to put on a poster and stuff like that. Um, so- I think, I, I love, uh, I, I think the makeup they do like is so flesh-like and believable that I think it's so great. and so preferable to the, uh, like the rubber suit Jennifer Lawrence is now wearing. Yeah. Um, that being said, if I was Jennifer Lawrence, I would absolutely demand to not have to sit through nine hours of makeup too. Uh, yeah. But, uh, yeah, for sure. And, and I uh, also get acting. I also get acting lessons, but that's another story. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think in this first movie, um, it they got better at it, and like straight yeah. away, like the second one is a much better looking it mystique. Just, but it just, but it just looks like a, it looks like a blue reptile person, which yes. is what, like that's since that's what they're going for, that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, and I think they they later they later like retconned a good explanation for why she was not wearing clothes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but again, again, yeah, they, you know, they kind of pulled that with, one out of their asses, but it worked quite well. <laughs> yeah, but like you know, with, when it comes to X Men, like retconning something doesn't really work because the timeline is an absolute fucking disaster. Oh, so like, yes. you can't really like just because they explain something away five films later doesn't really mean is it this the same it. person because that just that, that just opens up a can of worms for a hundred things that they in no way came close to explaining. Uh, but uh, yeah, so Sabretooth, what do you think about his look? Um, I like it physically. Obviously, that dude can't act, so they give him about no. three lines because he's a pro wrestler. But I, I like that he is physically very lucky because obviously Liv Schreiber is going to take this role in a few films' time. And while he is a great actor, and there's certain th- we'll we'll talk about it in more depth. But as a as a physical presence, Sabretooth is quite cool. I mean, he physically overpowers Wolverine. Like he's dominant. He's scary. Um, so I don't know. I kind of like that. I, I did. I so like, but when I my frustration as a kid and still now is that 
especially with Sabretooth, is that there is so much history there with Wolverine. Yeah, and they and just they just they don't know have each to other. Go, and it's if you don't want to go for it, fine. But like they hint at it way too much here. Yeah, with like Sabretooth taking his dog tags and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah, it is. It did and strike me as weird that like you either go for it, or you don't go for it, and they kind of split the difference. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of those cases where like. Who let's throw a bone to the comic book fans so we know that they're watching. Like it's kind of a more annoying than useful. Yeah. Um, like if you just want Sabretooth to be a Wolverine-like mutant who serves as a henchman for Magneto for reasons that we don't need to know, that kind of that works visually. That works, you know, at least some decent action. Yada 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 yada. But uh, I I think not really. Like Sabretooth is a character that deserves background that deserves this that deserves that and they shouldn't have teased it if they didn't want to follow through on it and they clearly didn't have any real interest in following through on it yeah um, definitely I, I agree with and, and like and what for i mean on the off chance anyone listening says no there's absolutely no way saber did not survive that fall so like the fact that he just disappeared after that was always frustrating to me yeah uh, well i mean this is superhero films generally you want to leave a door open for a character to return and with how many rotating pieces there are in the X-Men universe. But like given that like that he is just has exactly Wolverine's powers minus the metal like minus the metal skeleton like yeah. we know he survives so like why Well they never establish he can heal in the film. Well he gets stabbed by Wolverine. Like you know. Yeah but he I don't yeah I guess. You don't see him heal in the same way. Yeah. Maybe they just didn't want to spend the money. Yeah but uh I yeah, I think Mystique Mystique is such an interesting has such an interesting power and such a useful power for the story that she yeah. was, I think, used very effectively. And even just that seems like people like you were the reason I was afraid to go to school as a child was yeah, yeah. you know that was great. That yeah, was great. She, Rebecca she, Rebecca Romain really brought a lot of charisma to the role, which is something, once again, her future uh the future star Mystique could have learned from. Yeah, I mean um, they, they go out and get this huge name to replace her, and it's like I kind of think if you go back and watch X two, you will find Mystique as the single coolest character in this franchise. But whatever. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and even like the weird relationship that she and Magneto have mm-hmm. is really hinted at, and it's uh, it's intriguing. But you don't, you know, they don't have time to go into it, which is probably for the best in such a streamlined movie. But it, it makes you intrigued as to what would happen in the future. Yeah. Um, what about, what about think, Toad? Come on. I think Toad was great. Yeah. For what Toad needed to be. I he, think visually he was interesting. Uh he didn't look like a cartoon at all. He, I look, think. he looks unwell. <laughs> yes. He looks he looks like he's had a rough few weeks. Yeah. Um I think his powers are interesting in terms of leads to interesting fighting sequences. I think it's uh, it's funny. This is apparently one of the few times Ray Park has ever got to use his real voice in a movie. Yeah. Uh, but he brings the immediate like credibility, and I don't know. Like I think he's kind of like the ideal henchman. It's, and it's definitely the most fearsome he's ever been portrayed as because he's always oh, yeah. this comic relief, he's, bumbling character. But yeah. like and it those kind, powers, it kind of even compared to where he used to be, it kind of changed the direction of Toad as I've seen it in like, what was it? The, uh, X-Men evolution. Mm-hmm. And I'm guessing he was in the, some other ones too, since that, and I, I like, he's still kind of bumbling, but he's, yeah. you know, taken a bit more seriously in terms of being an actual threat. And, uh, I, the fact that that planned toad versus nightcrawler fight scene never happened oh, breaks my heart. Yeah. That breaks my heart. Cool. And I, 
and uh, I, it's for, and at least with Toad, you can justify like you can very easily foresee a scenario where he dies yeah. um, by being electrocuted and then sent into water. Um, but I think they lost out on an interesting henchman to for future films, and I don't know a more interesting well, fight than Nightcrawler versus Angel, certainly. <laughs> Um, yeah, I did. And, like- uh, by the way, so speaking of, uh, I did not learn this until last week when I started reading a few articles. And uh-huh. Much like you, I think we both read the IMDb trivia page on X Men yes. the past week too, based <laughs> on some of our comments. Uh, just being the expert uh, journalist that we are. Yeah. But uh, so I had completely forgotten that Josh Whedon wrote an original script for this yes. movie, and that one of there's apparently only like two lines that survive, and one of them is the infamously awful line. Do you know what happens to a toad when it's struck by lightning? The same thing that happens to everything else. And it's hard to believe that that was... Li- it's not hard to believe that Josh Whedon wrote that line, but it's it's just funny that this very celebrated writer and you know uh, creator basically <laughs> wrote the most hated thing in the movie, probably. Okay, so two things. One, there is a line a few minutes earlier that is way worse than that, and it's like, oh, looks like a storm's coming. And it's like, oh, come on. And uh, the thing with that line... So he originally wrote an entire script, or or a treat, or he doctored it, or whatever. A treatment. Yes, yeah. and yeah. they didn't like it because it was too pop culturey. According to him, Toad yes. was going to repeatedly say, "You know what happens to a Toad when?" And he would have all these Toad facts. So it was going to be a recurring theme, and then Storm <laughs> did that. So then it would have made more sense. But to cut all of that out and leave just that bit, it makes it a much worse line than it would have been in that context. <laughs> And it, it kind of, you know, uh, because Josh Whedon wrote the script for uh, the fourth Alien movie, uh, Alien Resurrection. Yes. And uh, and it's kind of a, it's an awful movie. It's really, really like I love the first Alien, and I think Sigourney Weaver's performance as Ridley is like just amazing, even in the weaker uh, films of that one. But basically, the fourth one's complete disaster. It's written by Josh Whedon, and basically explained is that is actually. A lot of people ask me, like, is that your script? Is that your script? Like, that is my script. That is what I wrote. But they took it way too seriously. And that's what it kind of reminded me of here. It's like, this was meant to be, like, a really funny line. But in this movie, it didn't work at all tonally. And it just seemed completely out of left field. Yeah, like uh, like his one was going to be a much more, like, lighthearted, jokey, jokey Campier, lighthearted movie. And, like, if they're going to get rid of that, why keep that one line? (laughs) there's There's not really anything like that in the rest of it. Do you think a better actress could have pulled that line off? Yeah, possibly. Uh, that's like the only thing I can think of. It, but, it, uh, it's a tricky line, but yeah, she doesn't. She's bad, and the line is bad, so it's a bad combo. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, maybe but, uh, if they maybe if they'd left in the other toad lines, then it would have worked. But yeah. But uh, yeah, I like the. I think the henchmen, like they, the the Brotherhood, worked well. Yeah, you know, overall, based he, on what they need to do. But you I mean, I think in total, they all have like 10 lines combined so, yeah but i mean uh, when not... you when you've got this powerhouse leading them it's, yeah it's acting yeah oh, we just, I mean. no, that's no, that's in no way me saying like man these actors were screwed over because ian mckellen got all their lines it's more <laughs> like they're not really characters are they visually interesting do they lead the fun fight sequences and the answer is almost always yes well i mean if they made that film today and like with the way everything's over originized maybe they would have gotten more time so maybe it's a good thing that they were just like here they are you get what they do have fun. It, like it's not their story. It's yeah. like their 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 story has been completed. This is like their destination as people. Yes. Yeah. Um. 
And you get some really good fights out of it. Like the the power yeah. sets mingle quite well. I think possibly my favorite action sequence in the film is uh, when Sabretooth got stormed by the neck in the train station, and Cyclops is walking over to break it up. Toad takes the visor off. Cyclops blows the roof off the train yeah. station, and you get. Uh, and then Storm takes advantage of this by you know bringing the lightning down. But it's 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 nice that it, it it makes logical sense in the way it progresses, and also it shows uh, it's another moment where you can get something out of Cyclops. Like yeah. this guy's quiet and withdrawn and everything. But, oh look, what look at the horror he has to deal with that if he just opens his eyes, this happens. And also, I think uh, with this movie, it kind of reminds me of First Class, where like the the, the henchmen are so efficient in how they use their powers, like their yes. their chemistry is like ridiculous. They know exactly like what the other person is going to do, and that makes total sense. Yeah, like they are kind of winning that fight near the end for the most part, and then, yeah, you know, things happen. And um, yeah, but uh, all right. So what else? Uh, what else do we need to talk about? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, we, we've kind of gone over the, the biggest strengths and everything. Um, so it's, I've really just got a very disjointed list of small things I liked. But I mean, a big one to talk about would be Magneto's powers. Uh, it's going to be a recurring theme. I think he is, uh, you can come up with the most creative and visually impressive uses of his power than anyone else. And yeah. y- you see this every time and it always impresses me what they do. Um but one that I think of immediately is he's got a Newton's cradle with no strings and he's just knocking the balls together yeah. with his mind. I just think it's such a small touch. It's just on his desk. Like they don't frame it in the middle of the shot or anything. It's just in the corner. And I just think that's, that's a great moment. What's interesting to me is uh, I really noticed this time is that I can't like, I can't tell if they wanted it to be like a character thing or mm. they just want to make sure the audience understood the, what his power was. But like he does everything with his power. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Instead, of, instead of having a bridge, he's going to build a bridge literally every single time <laughs> he walks from one place to his lair to another place <laughs> in his lair. Uh, there's no one around. Oh, he's going to have those five balls bouncing off each other because it looks cool. <laughs> yeah, well, it works either way. I mean, it's a nice yeah. character. And you can kind of like it. Want, like it makes sense his first character. Like he's obsessed. Like he fully embraces who he is and like he but i'm also like picturing like maybe like he feels like if he was ever his lair was ever invaded like only he could be easily escape and everyone else couldn't move around easily or something <laughs> like that like yeah sure uh, that's, and, uh, always, that's always been like one of the big things is magneto is so experienced with his powers that he overmatches almost anyone you put in front of him who is generally yeah. the cast of x-men are teenagers or or young people who have you know they're not used to their powers, or they only see them in a certain way. Whereas he has like seemingly done anything you can think of with them. He's used them. He's worked like like they're a muscle. He's worked it out. Yeah. You know. And uh, and like the scene, the scene in the in the Statue of Liberty where he just pins them all to the wall. I think it's it's amazing. Like he puts yeah. Wolverine's fists against his own chest. He makes Scott so that he's looking directly at Jean and takes the visor away, and then. Uh, <laughs> In what I think is possibly the best line in the whole franchise, uh, Cyclops tells Storm to to zap him, and he goes, "I thought you all worked at lived at a school." <laughs> yeah, I thought you lived in a school. Just delivered with this dryness that only McKellen could probably yeah. deliver. It's, it's perfect, and, uh, and and the way you know you have you know your crusading hero as Wolverine. Here's the guy we all want to get behind, and 
the biggest villain in X-Men, well... He's rendered completely exactly. useless by Magneto. Exactly! <laughs> he can do nothing against him, and he just puts him in, like, a Jesus pose and bends the claws. It's great. Uh, and I love, uh... I, I don't know if it was done purposely, but, like, Ian McKellen does so much of his power so effortlessly. Yes. Like, the scene with, like, where he shoots the uh, the tranquilizer dart at Rogue, like, he just kind of, like, casually m- removes his cape and, like, I, I, get, go get her. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing, like, he's this physic physically, he's kind of a, you know, he's just an old man. Yeah. But he has this gravitas, you know, largely because Ian McKellen is capable of just doing that, just carrying himself well. Yeah. But you get why he's like that, aside from the fact he's Ian McKellen. And, like, in the comics, there's actually been this change to make him a more physically imposing character. Like, they, they made his body younger, and he's stronger, and he... Oh, really? It's like, that, that kind of ruins it a bit. Like, he's this, yeah. this force of nature, you know? Like, and he just, he carries himself with grace and ease. And even that kind of is paid off at the end was where he's completely weakened by touching Rogue that, mm-hmm. like, he kind of has to desperately hang on to Wolverine. Like, yeah. he can't just casually yeah, yeah. toss and Wolverine aside like he'd normally be able to. Like, this is a weekend, nearly dead Magneto having to hang on with all of his might to Wolverine. Yeah. And, like, uh, and like that, stand, that stands in stark contrast to how he operates the rest of the movie. Yeah, sure. Like he he's he's got such fine control, he can fire a gun and stop the bullet before it touches a cop's head. Yeah, and oh, amazing. Um, oh, I think <laughs> I think my quintessential Wolverine film moment is him waking up from a nightmare in the middle of the night and stabbing a teenage girl to death, <laughs> and then being horrified at what he's done. Like that just that that kind of captures the character. Yeah, huh? it's perfect. He's like, completely tortured. He thinks he doesn't think before he acts. And then he feels awful about the things he's done. Yeah, like when I say this is a series of character moments strung together, like it's just that kind of stuff. It's like here he is cage fighting, here he is being a dick at the bar, here he is reluctantly with Rogue, you know, all this stuff, and just you get who he is. It's it's effortless. And uh, that actually reminds me, there's one. I'm gonna say character loosely here. There's one character we forgot to talk about, Uh but we have to because he has somehow survived 15 years of, of X-Men films. And that is Bobby Drake played <laughs> with play, played with, um, how, what's the adjective for this? I don't know. I don't, know with, uh, I don't know if there's an adjective to describe how boring Sean Ashmore is, how little he brings to the role of Bobby Drake. He's a beige but, human being. Yes. <laughs> yes. And, uh, and I, I don't like to pick on him because it's just like, he was cast so young. Mm-hmm. Like he was probably a teenager. Like, like he just, and he doesn't like, they don't ask him to do anything. So he doesn't even really do anything wrong as an actor. Yeah. Like they just, they literally don't ask him to do anything. Like he just has to deliver a few lines um, he gets a few moments in the second film, I guess, but uh, he's not really. What a! It's just so, it's just so random how sometimes these things work out. Where like this random, like probably eighteen, nineteen year old kid gets cast in this role and is playing him up and through two thousand fourteen. Yeah, I mean, um, it, it's difficult. Like I love Iceman as a character. Like I think he kind of hit the whole point of him is untapped potential. Like, every time there's an alternate Iceman or someone takes control of his body or something, they use his powers in ways he's never thought of, and he becomes this infinitely more powerful being. Um, so there's a in lot... In case of... anyone's wondering, Matt actually reads the comic books, I and do. I've read maybe, like, 15 in my life. So. I do. Well, this and is only a handful of X-Men ones. I only started reading them after I'd seen most of the films. Like, I, yeah. I grew up on the animated series. That was yeah. my, my frame of reference for these movies. So whenever I was like, oh, it's Absolutely. supposed to be this... I was going from the from the animated series. It was only, I don't know. I think just my continued interest in these movies that convinced me to pick up some comics. But yeah. I mean, 
Yeah, Bobby Drake is going to be this very sort of goofy, fun-loving, prankster-type character, and you get this just sort of beige vanilla, vanilla human who... Yeah. His powers are cool. And, like, he interacts with other characters well in terms of his powers and stuff, but just the performance he, is so flat. Yeah. There's really just nothing there. And uh, is anyone besides Pyro in this movie recast later on? Uh, well, there's three Kitty Prides. Oh, that's right. And there's four, three or four Jubilees. But uh, uh, I, even, I, I guess Kitty does become a character. But yeah, so yeah, yeah Pyro and Kitty are introduced here. But yeah. they're really, I mean, they have a, we get to see their power and that's about it. Yeah. Um, um, no, I, th- I that's, think that's generally it. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean... Well, that, actually, I guess Toad and Sabretooth actually get recast, but that's not what I was thinking. I was thinking true. of, like, the immediate uh, future. Yeah. Um, that, um, that's that's something I, I will mention. Uh, every time you're in the X-Mansion, it's always fun playing spot the character kind of thing, because you've, yes. you've always got kids wandering yes. around in the background, you've got uses of powers, and you're like, oh, that's blah, 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 and that's that's always fun. Yeah, they do. Um, that's, that's actually always a fun part of the X-Men, being in the mansion a little bit. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, so is there anything else on your list of interesting things? Uh, not from the film itself. I've got some stuff from deleted scenes that I that I watched and you didn't. Uh. <laughs> I watched them 10, 15 years ago. Though, okay. So. It's, it's, uh, honestly, I remember, I remember thinking, like, oh, that's why these scenes are deleted. That's literally my memory of the deleted scenes. Like, mostly sure. useless. Sure. Uh, one thing, I mean, Rogue brings up a desire to be cured by Xavier, which is something that will be important two movies from now. But unfortunately, but yes, that would be important. <laughs> yeah, well, for sure. But if you were, if there was a coherent, ongoing story, that would have been something to include. But they uh, they didn't know they were going to do that at that time, I guess. Um, Cyclops says something to Wolverine along the lines of, "I'd feel better about all this if you took it more seriously," and it's sort of. <laughs> I think it's a nice moment between them. Like, it explains his frustration with him. Like, you know, Wolverine doesn't take it that seriously, and Cyclops is all about the job and all that. Um, yeah, I guess that's it, really. Yeah. There's, um, yeah, most of them are just either extended versions of what's already there or just not needed. Like, give it, like we've said, like, four or five times now how streamlined and efficient this film is, and, like, you, that they probably had to edit it a lot and just keep cutting stuff down and end up with this really focused vision i think yeah. it's a very interesting movie mm. i i can't imagine that any of the 15 people who end up listening to this have yeah. not seen it but uh <laughs> it's I, I i would absolutely put it in the top half of comic book movies made in the past 20 years um it is one of the most significant for all the reasons we say before mm-hmm. I think you and I are more personally attached to it than a lot of people. I think if there's been one issue with the X-Men movies is that there's not a lot of personal attachment, it seems to the actual movies. Uh, I have my theories as that. Like, I think not having a main central character kind of dissuades people from getting like, I, to me as a kid, like I was just furious year after year seeing Spider-Man getting better reviews and making more money than X-Men. Like it just, drove me nuts (laughs) like it drove me nuts and uh i couldn't understand like i could not understand it It made me like this 
like dislike the Spider-Man movies way more than I actually do because I don't really have a problem with the first two, but I'm just like these are so inferior to the first two X-Men movies. Why Definitely. why is the narr- why is the narrative the other way around? Um and I I think this not only stands up as a movie, but when you compare it to the majority of comic book movies that come out, even the good ones, it stands out as being unique and fresh and having an individual take on this world in a way that very few of them do, including the X-Men movies, including the most, um, I mean, because even two of the last three X-Men movies, uh, just X-Men movies, which I, I've liked all the new ones. Um, even those, like they kind of feel much more marvelly than, this one does. Oh, there's, yeah, there's a definite influence. Um, for sure, this movie is way better than I remember it being. Like, yeah. uh, I, I've seen it several times, but just, as I said before, in my head, it's just kind of like, it's good, but it's not phenomenal. And I look at it now and I think, you know what? This is a really, really good film. And yeah. um, it's, it's certainly better than any of the Spider-Man films, I think. Um, oh, yeah. Like, I mean, that wouldn't that, even be a question in my that, mind. That's the narrative, it would seem. Like, before there were so many Marvel movies and they started to get better reviews uh, after a certain point, the ongoing narrative, I certainly from people I spoke to and would read about, was it's Spider-Man 2 versus X-Men 2 kind of thing. And I, I always thought X-Men 2 was way better than Spider-Man 2. It's not even debate, but no. I'm sure we'll get into that. Yes, part. we will. Yeah, uh, it's a good, it's a good teaser. We'll be talking about X Men too uh, next time. But I guess, like, I guess what we can finish off is like, what are the things about this movie that people? What? Why do you think there is a lack of fondness for this movie? It's kind of like it's almost like a dutiful respect. It was like, well, if it wasn't for X Men, we wouldn't have all these other movies, so it's important. That's like, why do people not like respect it on its own? I should say. Like, they respect the fact that it exists, but they don't respect the fact that it's good. I think because it's kind of... It did come out a long time before the recent spate of comic book movies. Um, it's... Even even X-Men 2, by the time that came out, superheroes were far more in vogue. Uh, and it, it gets a little bit more marvelly. Uh, it's still not like the Marvel movies, but there's something about this one that it feels very isolated and in a bubble... And when it came out, it I mean, again, I don't know. I, I, I have minimal memory of, of when this actually came out. But I don't know. It just felt like less of a... It felt like a, a one-off project, maybe. Um, yeah. Whereas from X-Men 2 and, onwards, they're all very connected to each other. And it, it probably yeah. is easy to just leave this off and be like, oh, that's just the one where they're all introduced. Yeah, but it's like... I know like people complain about the act or the lack of action and... Um, I'm not going to pretend that Brian Singer is like the action director of our lives because he's clearly not that. No. But, you know, I'd rather have like this simple basic action that makes sense and is done logically than almost any action scene in almost any comic book movie that we've had in the last 15 years. Yeah. So much of it is mindless and mean like, well, we need to have a big action scene now, so we're yeah, going to have yeah. a big action scene now. And this movie just kind of says, no. Yeah, exactly. I can do that. Like, even a scene as simple as the one I described with Cyclops shooting the roof off the building, like, that's barely qualifies as an action scene, it's so short, yeah. but it's logical and it, it's important and it shows things about the characters and it's well shot and it, it, it's good. Um, I think that's probably another thing. If you describe the plot of this film out loud, not a lot happens and it's quite short and whatnot. Yes. And I think this almost. 
I respect this more just like as a an exercise in filmmaking. Whereas when I would have been even five years younger, I would think about these movies in terms of oh, what were the big moments that happened. So yeah. I I think that is probably why it has less of a legacy. And I, I actually almost think the best argument you can make against it is like, well, if I'm going to just get like a character driven movie about issues, like there's way better ones than this. Mm. So it's like if I'm gonna like, so I could kind of like see that being like for people who are. I mean, just like a lot of people are clearly interested in comic book movies for things that this movie does not do. Sure. And but I would I would say like if if anyone's listening to this and they and they you know they're big into comic book movies generally, but they like me don't have much of a memory of this one, or, or they only remember it being okay. I challenge everyone to go back and watch this, or maybe if you even hadn't even seen it, go back and watch this. It holds up so so well, which is weird given the effect you know don't hold up as well but the film as a as a piece does hold up but even with that like you know like for instance with that scene where um mystique is at is is transformed into wolverine and she jumps in midair and does a twist and turns into mystique halfway through that looks better than once again 90 percent of cgi well they do this weird thing where she's like gradually like yeah changing the the way they do it now is, is really weird like it's like a digital peel down almost with these yeah. flex yes, coming off yes, her and yes, it just looks yes, so strange yeah. it looks like a power rangers thing. i didn't even think yeah i didn't even think of that yeah, but it's like, like yeah she's far uh, more chameleon like uh, yeah that that shot I, was used in a lot of promotional yeah. material where she's doing the spin kick and, and transforming yeah and i guess this is like i like i, I similar, similar to what you just said i challenge anyone to go back and watch this compared to any mcu film and explain to me why this one is not as good. Uh, I think there's really genuinely only a handful of films in the Marvel Cinematic Universe that I would put above this one. Yeah, this is this and, is way up there. Like maybe when we get towards the end of this whole series of podcasts, we could do some kind of personal ranking. But I would say, you know, just casually spitballing, this is way up there on the list of, of superhero yeah. films. Yeah, and. Um, like I kind of have a feeling it's pro- it might be like number three of my X Men films, but when we get through all these again on rewatch, which is not I would have expected it to be number four or five. And I know that's obviously like nitpicking a little bit, but it's 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 a good movie. Mm. I, I, like I'll even lay out this. I'll even be more specific about it. Go back and watch X Men and Iron Man. If you think Iron Man's a better movie, you have terrible tastes. You just have terrible tastes. I've had this argument so many times. Everything after Tony has finished building the suit is mediocre to bad. Like when he's actually in the the fight of the film, like it's he's charming as hell as Tony Stark, and him, you know, messing about building the suit is fun. But after that, it just like like the I'm gonna hold back a little bit now, but okay. like Iron Man is an okay movie. Yeah, it totally makes sense why it kickstarted this popularity. Yep, Robert Downey Jr. is delightful in it. Yes. Probably the best. I get that. I get in... why people. I get why people romanticize that movie. Yeah, like a... it is. It is significant. That's what I think it is. I genuinely think people go back and rewatch it. If you think it's better than X Men, you just don't like why. Tell yeah. like list the reasons. Like I need like an actual like paper. Explain we... to me why Iron Man is better than X Men. And we will go. I don't, through think, it... I don't think you. Can, I don't think you can rationally do it. Yeah, we'll go through this list point by point. Counterpoint for counterpoint, and we will break this down on an upcoming episode of this unnamed podcast. Um, yeah, because it's, I, I it drives me nuts. I, I, like I said, I get very defensive over the X Men movies, and I know I shouldn't, 
but I, I just think that the quality is there and it's so much more interesting than the majority of comic book movies. So the fact that it's just kind of like tossed aside and treated as like the middle child of comic book movies compared to Warner Brothers and Marvel is just like you're missing out on so much. Yep. <laughs> like what? Like, like there, there are people out there who probably have better feelings of the Thor movies than X-Men. And I just, I can't, I can't even imagine well, like, are, what th- they would those are people you just stop listening to. Yeah. <laughs> just walk away. Uh, with that in mind. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> let's walk away from this podcast. Uh, anyway, this was a, a ton of fun. Yeah. Uh, or, I, I guess for... Did we even explain what the idea behind this podcast was at all? I, I think I kind of got into it a little bit at the yeah. beginning. There's, there's like eight or nine uh, X-Men films that take place in that universe. We're going to do a podcast in each one of them. Uh, some of them are going to be movies we really like. Some of them are going to be movies that I hate. Mm-hmm. Some of them are going to be movies that offend me to my very soul. Um, but that is kind of the beauty of talking about the X-Men movies is that there's with, I think maybe only the second Wolverine movie. That's the only one I'm just going to be stretching for things to talk about because that's pretty boring. Yeah, but that's... with the other ones, there's so many things to talk about. Yeah, for uh, better and for worse, there there's something yeah. to talk about. There's, yeah, you're right. That that Wolverine movie is just long and boring. Yeah, I, I think that. I mean, that will probably be a very short podcast, quite frankly. Yes. Um, I don't. I can't even imagine what we'll talk about besides just complaining that it's not that good and how that after credit scene is really awkward. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, there's not there isn't one in this one because that no, that trend hasn't not, been established. That, that was not in vogue yet. Yeah, there's no Marvel. Uh, flickering logo at the beginning yeah um it was a different time kids it was a different time yeah even even the 2003 one x-men has the marvel logo i think but yep. uh and not, this one. not really a post credit scene but a, a sort of after scene yeah um what else do we have to talk oh uh the dvd is really interesting i uh, this is the first dvd i ever had and there was so much effort put into this presentation like you have to open like three boxes just to get to the disc <laughs> and then you know like there's an animated menu that's kind of neat it's like it's not a big deal but it's just kind of interesting to see how much care was put in the dvds when they were first released um brian singer is a child rapist we have to mention that yes we uh, do he is an awful human being yes he makes good x-men movies though and it's that is the internal conflict that we all must go through while watching we've uh, all enjoyed something made by someone we don't like yeah, um, that will be mentioned sporadically throughout the podcast, just as a friendly reminder. Just drop that, that Brian in, Singer. <laughs> Brian Singer is a is a child rapist. Let's uh, should we end on that? Yeah. Okay. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, this will be released somewhere. Yeah. On something, <laughs> and hopefully you will find it and listen to it, and then rewatch Iron Man and recognize how much better X Men is there. There you go. So. In closing, X-Men 1's really good. Brian Singer is a child rapist. Bye, everybody.